Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Dr. Sheila Gudrathi is a physician executive with a deep track record in translational science and drug development. She currently sits on the board for Ventix Biosciences, Impact Bio, ADARX Pharmaceuticals, and Janix Therapeutics, and is a prior venture advisor at Orbimed and prior chair of Turning Point Therapeutics. She's co-founder and former CEO of Gossamer Bio, a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company focused on discovering, acquiring, developing, and commercializing therapeutics in the disease areas of immunology, inflammation, and oncology. Prior to Gossamer Bio, Dr. Gujarati served as Chief Medical Officer of Receptos, which was acquired by Celgene in 2015. Prior to Receptos, Dr. Gujarati was Vice President of the Global Clinical Development Group in Immunology at Bristol-Myers Squibb, where she led the clinical development and supported numerous global regulatory filings and approvals for Arencia and Neulogics. Prior to Bristol-Myers Squibb, Dr. Gujarati held roles in the Immunology, Tissue Growth, and Repair Clinical Development Groups at Genentech. Earlier in her career, she was a management consultant in McKinsey's healthcare practice. She received her medical degree in the accelerated seven-year medical program at Northwestern. She completed her internal medicine internship and residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, and additional fellowship training in allergy and immunology at UCSF and Stanford. Thank you again for, for being on today. I'm very excited for this conversation May, you know, just to see how you've gotten to to where you are today, and also I'm biased in in that I'm I'm very interested in the in the biotech and life sciences space. But I mean, to kick things off, you've you've had a very rich career in medicine and business, transitioning from clinical practice to consulting to drug development and entrepreneurship, and now in in more advisory roles. How how did you navigate? Uh, those decisions that you had at these key junctures in your career. Great. Well, thank you, uh, Shemnam, so much for having me on the Thea podcast and uh, starting off with this question. It's a it's a great question. It's a simple question, yet as we all know, very complex. And that there's so many considerations that any one individual goes through when we're thinking about our career. Like many people. I had a plan. My plan when I was originally thinking about my career was to be a physician. Um, I came from a family of physicians, both my parents and my brother are uh, are doctors. And I really didn't expect or anticipate having such a varied career, especially during that time frame when I was growing up, uh, you know, people, you know, tended to have one career. They worked on at one specific company for most of their career, or they you know, they, they would have play one type of professional role or career, it didn't really move around as much. So I think that's changed uh, in today's day and age. But what I would say is that it was a very organic process for me. I did transition from one of these careers to another career and, and, and transition from role to role. And I would say some of the key principles, if you will, as I was thinking through and making these transitions were the following. Um, I think number one, I was really following my interests and where my passion uh, arose. And also when I wasn't interested or excited about a career that I was in or 
the types of activities that I was doing on a daily basis. So in some ways I would follow my energy level. And I strongly recommend that for individuals because, you know, we have, you know, many of us are very bright and we have very complex brains and they can tell us a lot of, uh, they have a lot of messages for us. Right. And there's societal and familial and cultural beliefs and mindsets that we all grow up with. And I think one of the most challenging, really one of the most challenging uh, things that we have to do as individuals is actually figure out what we want to do. You know, what, what is our, our uh, passion? What are our goals? And to try to listen to yourself. And I, and I find that the best way to do that is really to follow your energy. Mm -hmm. Are you excited about something? Does it get you out of bed? Do you want to go into work and actually do those activities that day? Now, I can't say that's always going to be the case 100% of the time, but it should be the majority of your time, you know, in your job and in your career. So that's my first, you know, I think principle is just following your energy level and your passion as much as possible. I would say the second is, you know, that I really do like to challenge myself. I believe that life, we are in this life to grow both professionally and personally. In fact, they're very much intertwined. You know, it's difficult to not really live your authentic life while you're at work. I mean, or, you know, we sometimes have these different personas, but I think that it's very important to try to integrate as much as possible. And so challenging myself has definitely been a theme, I think, in in my life. And, um, you know, obviously I've been in some wonderful roles and I could have spent more time there or decided that, you know, this is going to be my track, but I've always, you know, said, well, you know, what could I be doing differently or how do I push myself to grow? And I think that's just something inherent in me. And so for those who also share that mindset and it's okay if you don't, I mean, people mm-hmm. find what they love and they say, this is what I'm going to do for us in my life. And that's wonderful. I think that's a blessing. But for myself, I think challenging myself has been um, something that has been a principle I think that's navigator or push me to try something new. And then the third is kind of, you know, having courage, you know, facing your fears. And sometimes those challenges come in the form of like, you're, you know, you're uncomfortable and you're saying, well, can I really do that? And I think I found myself saying, well, like, let me have the courage to go and do something which I didn't think I could do. And I, I think that has been um, something that, that I, I find gives me great enjoyment and satisfaction, you know, not conquering the fear, at least trying to address it. So that's something that I, I have found, you know, to be true for myself. So those are some things that I can share in terms of when I was in a career and deciding, well, what else could I be doing? For example, moving from large pharma to small entrepreneurial biotech, you know, that was definitely, there's, you know, there's, there was some fear there. There was some, you know, can I really do that? You know, mm-hmm. I've been enjoying my time in large pharma. I believe there's pros and cons to every situation, but I then knew in my heart that it was going to be kind of a really good move for me personally. So I went ahead and, and made the change because of all these reasons, but that's just kind of an example of, you know, why and how, you know, I, what kind of process thinking process I go through when I, I try to make these decisions. Excellent. That's that's a very great framework. And I think it's very easy to remember framework to to help navigate these these tough decisions. And I agree. Once you feel like you've reached a, a plateau at a in terms of the learning curve in your career, I think that's that's a sign that it's good to to shift to to something else that continuously challenges you. And I think when you do that, I do think your energy level goes up. So mm-hmm. yeah, like that's a good, I think just, you know, a good compass to, to kind of follow. How do you feel your medical training has 
helped throughout your your career? Did it feel like it gave you a competitive edge or a newfound understanding? How did it how did it factor in? Yeah, well, I think for biotech in particular, whether it's you know biotech or biopharma, innovative drug development, I do think the medical training in my from my perspective was critical because it gave me so much depth of the subject matter at hand uh, because, you know, I have a very translational mindset. So I love to partner with excellent research scientists and understand their scientific platform and their breakthroughs, and then take that, you know, one step further and try to understand how to really apply it for patients and also keep the patient at the center of my decision-making process or really strategic process and what we're trying to figure out of what to do with a technology or given program. So I think the medical training gives you just such, again, subject matter expertise, you know, really Mm -hmm. understanding as much as we do about physiology, pathology, and then all the different specialties that, that, that are exist and understanding again, where, where your passion is in terms of deciding, because it's difficult to master, obviously, all of these different areas, or even become an expert in any one area. It's so complex these days, um, given all that we've learned in any given field. But I think that is really critical. I also think that, you know, going into medicine, especially if you spend time practicing, you know, doing your, your, your medical training in residency fellowship and going out into the real world or an academic setting, actually practicing medicine, you do get adept at and develop abilities to process large amounts of information in a relatively mm-hmm. short period of time. And your your powers of deduction and inference become very strong. And I think that that does serve you quite well when you you know go then into these different industries. Uh, but I, I don't think physicians understand how many skills they have and how much they're able to learn, absorb, you know, digest and actually apply uh, fairly quickly. So I think that we get a lot of training doing that. And that is based on another strong skill, which is uh, the power of observation. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to We really if you know, if for you know, if you're being, you know, the best vision you can be, you are really observing, you're really listening to your patients, and you're really um, to their family members, and you're trying to, again, understand based on everything that you're hearing, all the diagnostic tests you're doing, all the results that you're getting, you know, really try to figure out your differential diagnosis and the potential, uh, you know, treatment plan for, for a patient. And then I do think as a physician, you do, you know, become a good communicator because you're communicating all the time with family members and you do have to have confidence because when patients and their families come to see you, you know, they want, you know, they want to feel that they're under great care and they have so much anxiety and worry of, of course, naturally, that I think you do automatically start, you know, stepping into, you know, that kind of confidence so that you can really take care of your patients. Even if you're not a, a very confident person, I think we try to portray confidence for the benefit of our patients. So I think all of those things are, you know, really, really helpful uh, within biotech. Yeah, no, it's certainly it's very clear that you've been able to to not only have independent lessons from each point in your career, but also finding the commonalities between seemingly disparate areas, which I think we we don't operate in silos as 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 a society, and so being able to to think in different ways and find combinations of disparate uh, areas, I think, is is beneficial. All right, so I wanted to shift gears a little bit and focus uh, more on your time co-founding and leading Gossamer. First question would be, what what actually led to the founding of Gossamer Bio? 
Yeah, that was a, a great journey. You know, I think there was a few things. One was I was coming off a great exit. It was terrific to have a success with my first small biotech company, which was Receptos. And I had a lot of learnings through that Receptos experience. Um, I saw the power of what could be achieved with a really small, tight, high performing, you know, experienced team coming out of large pharma, you know, we, you know, terrific expertise uh, in large pharma across multiple functional areas. Uh, But it's just larger, you know, larger teams, um, you know, there's more process, if you will, and uh, review committees. And, you know, there's just more bureaucracy just when you have, you know, larger numbers of people and organizations and, um, you know, therapeutic areas. When you go to a small company, you can really get focused and, you can really drive for, you know, for results. So the ability to be innovative in an urgent manner was something that I found very refreshing um, working in a small company. So, but what, but I think the downside of what sometimes happens with small companies is that it can be quite inefficient in that uh, if you're so lucky to be acquired, you know, because obviously that's considered a great exit, you actually lose your team. So, uh, you know, a large, larger company will come and acquire a smaller company or, you know, there'll be some type of merger. And then, you know, you, you, you spend all this time, you know, building this team, developing these trusting relationships and uh, really working well together. And, and then that's that, you know, then I lost my team that can be gone. And so what I was thinking about for Gossamer is can we actually bring a team together and, you know, develop innovative therapies uh, and have a pipeline and stay together in a way that could be more sustained in long term. So that was some of the the driving principles of, of forming Gossamer and also working on therapeutics uh, in a really innovative fashion. And that's something that, you know, I felt like I had done well at Receptos as the chief medical officer. So I had it in my heart um, and I had a high passion for founding my own company and bringing together like a, a really uh, dedicated, experienced team and then working on a few programs in, in an efficient manner. And that was that was really, I think, part of why I led me to co-found Gossamer. So that was something that uh, I found very exciting. And how did you feel at, you know, at that time uh, as a woman at the helm of a biotech company trying to build, build the team, build out the pipeline, establish credibility for, for the company and all the while fundraise? Again, great question. You know, it was something that was obviously top of mind for me in some ways. And sometimes people say, well, I try to not pay attention to that. But that wasn't the case for me. I, I think another reason why I did get involved in founding my own company and stepping into the CEO role is because I, I did want to uh, do this for, for women, for my daughter, you know, for, for the next generations, uh, as well as myself, to show, not tell, to show that we can continue to play these very senior, significant roles in our industry, continue to push and break those glass ceilings and really establish ourselves in these different roles. And I've had so many women, you know, come and tell me, you know, they've been following my career and they've seen what I can do. And I know when I do and perform certain roles that I am telling everyone, you can do this as well. There's Mm -hmm. no reason why, you know, women can't found their companies, can't be the CEO of their companies, can't be chair of their companies, can't be investors. I mean, these are these are all roles that we can absolutely do and we should be doing and that we do have a seat at the table. And it's a really, it's it's necessary, right? The, the, the diversity, the skills that we bring are absolutely essential to developing innovative therapies in biotech and uh, mm-hmm. really, you know, 
from my perspective, adding so much value to the, to the ecosystem. So that was a big part of me. And one of the big reasons why I chose to actually uh, go found Gosmer Bio and step into that role. So, so, so basically it was pretty amazing. It was amazing to be a CEO and leading my company. I, I love being a leader and I take leadership and management very seriously. I always have. I also think it's important to be an authentic leader. And so when you are playing the role of CEO, you have to get clear on what your values are because that's how you define your authenticity. And so for me, you know, the values that have always bubbled up to the top of my list are really um, having respect for others, having humility, and also focusing on collaboration. And those are the things that really drive me and where I feel like I'm thriving and in a great environment. So when you're a leader and a CEO of an organization, you get to really shape that culture, uh, which brought me a lot of really a lot of joy. You know, I have to say, when I stepped into the CEO role, there weren't a lot of women CEOs in my industry. Mm -hmm. There weren't a lot of people for me to call upon. And that was really challenging. I felt that while I had some role models, I, you know, I didn't have as many as I would have liked. And you know, when I was, uh, you know, facing challenges and, and there definitely are challenges and I'm happy to go through kind of what some of mine were and, mm-hmm. you know, what just, you know, the advice for, you know, the next generations of women, the women who are CEO leaders today, many of whom are my friends and who I, you know, I'm always available to. At the time, there just weren't, weren't that many women CEOs. And so, you know, I, I was hoping to, again, continue to, to make that change, but that's something that of note. And now I'm involved, particularly on where we're, really bringing biotech women CEOs together, female CEOs. And uh, I'm really pleased to say we have over 150 now in our group. And, you know, I'm sure we don't, you know, have, you know, everyone in this network, but, you know, we're growing and it's very open and inclusive, but we we're really up to more than 150 women. And I'm just thrilled that, you know, we're having these retreats and we're spending a lot of time together. And it's just wonderful to see the growth of, of, of women CEOs. I always look forward to to seeing the fierce biotechs, fierce women of the year, and and seeing that is just is is inspiring to see how more and more women are are at the helm of companies and and leading efforts in in drug development. And it's great that you've you've helped form some of these um, organizations and networks among women CEOs because at the end of the day, we need to sponsor one another and it's that will help to to get more women at these leadership positions if we're all helping each other out that's absolutely right and we have the same first had heard it from a great organization called athena that focuses on women in in science and leadership and in all different areas actually and it's just a wonderful organization and they have um something to the effect of you know what to lift people up while you're climbing while we're summiting these mountains and climbing these mountains that we're lifting one another up. And I, I just love that, that imagery. And I, and I think that's right. You know, that you were used a great, you know, word in term sponsorship that we all, I think really understand now, or we're growing to understand that when I was, you know, kind of rising in my career, I didn't really understand the differences between mentorship and sponsorship. And mm-hmm. now, and then when I, under, when I understood what that term meant, I was like, oh, that's what a sponsor is. And someone who's really going to advocate for you, someone's going to open doors for you, someone who's going to actually put their reputation on the line for you, someone who's going to really go out, go out of their way for you and really help you uh, ascend in your career versus kind of giving you more hands off, you know, advice. I absolutely share your perspective and, and joy like when I read these articles about amazing women founders and scientists and leaders and, and, 
CEOs and investors. It's real. It's so inspiring. And, um, and again, just something I want to see more of. Exactly. Exactly. Likewise. <laughs> One of the unfortunate realities of, of being a CEO is that when oftentimes when something goes wrong, in the case of biotech, if there are certain clinical setbacks and pushing for pipeline rework, et cetera, CEOs get a lot of the flack for it. So how how did you deal with some of the challenges as a CEO of a clinical stage, uh, stage company? Well, as you know, our industry, the biotech industry, is not for the faint of heart. Mm-hmm. So it's a high-risk endeavor. Um, so when I look at any clinical program, there are so many things that could go awry. And so I truly believe in planning, scenario planning, planning for the worst case situation and being very proactive about that. Because while we also need to, we need to plan for success clearly and be prepared to, to capitalize on that. We also have to, you know, plan for if there are issues along the way. I mean, we do as much as we can to de-risk, follow strong scientific rationale, to make sure we're moving programs in the clinic that have the appropriate properties, but unanticipated safety issues, whether your drug or target is truly going to work or reach the level of efficacy you need to achieve, you're not going to know until you get the clinical data, regardless of how many preclinical experiments you've done. And sometimes signals and issues come up quite late in development as well. So you try to do as much as you can to de-risk early, as early as you can uh, in, in you know, the stage of development. But again, I, you know, I, I believe that you, know, you have to plan for that. So from my perspective, this is why I, I think it's great to have a portfolio of assets. I mean, it's always, if you have a single asset and you know, a lot of small companies are built around a single asset, I think, um, you know, of course, you know, if it has a high probability of success, that could really work. And we oftentimes see that it does. However, um, I think there's also a very reasonable chance, you know, and if you know most phase two programs, their probability of success is about 30%, right? Especially for novel target biology. So you always have to plan for, for those failures and have, you know, what would you do in that situation? And so mm-hmm. if you can have a strong pipeline, other assets to bring forward, I think that's very prudent. So I really recommend that, you know, in terms of always planning for risk and then trying to make sure that you're well capitalized you have other assets to work on and that you have the capital to, to deliver on that. In this market, that, that ha- it has been more challenging than in, in prior times, just because it's the, the bar has gone up even higher. So it, sometimes there's nothing short of perfection in some ways. If you don't hit it out of the park, I think that fortunately it's going to be very difficult for you to kind of fundraise and finance your efforts in this environment. Uh, but that is something that is still, I think, really critically important. So those are some of the principles that I try to to have, you know, when you're considering being a CEO, you know, or an investor in a biotech company. And so I imagine you've had many inbound requests to to join boards so that many of these companies can can leverage your your experience. So what what did you look for in a company when deciding that this is worth spending some time on 
in in a board position. There are a few things that have kind of bubbled up to the top of my priority list when I look at opportunities. And I would say this is true for me as a board member and investor, because I often will co-invest in companies that I'm on the board of or advising. So I think that's important to put your money where your mouth is and, you know, really show your commitment. And so that's so I, you know, and it, it makes you, I think, a better decision maker too, when you actually invest your own capital, you know, in terms of does it, does that reach, you know, your level of scrutiny and interest and excitement. I remember I had, a, I did have a mentor once who talked to me about like the three legs of a stool, think about what makes a successful company. And so I use, I, I do use that framework now. So uh, the first is, uh, you know, am I really excited about the science and the pipeline? So that could be, you know, the whole technology platform that, that they're working on, or it could be the specific program that's been developed or programs or pipeline assets with that small molecules or large molecules. Now I'm working on RNA therapeutics and cell therapy. So all of these different things, you know, there's real excitement from my perspective. And I, I, I think it's, you know, very innovative. And the second, and, and you know, and all these, I, I would say are kind of equally important for me. Like if I think one of these isn't there, I think it's, it's a difficult, it could be a difficult value proposition for the company. Um, the second are the people, the people who are involved, you know, are these, you know, who are these individuals? I do like to spend a lot of time understanding who are the investors that are involved, who are the, the, the people who are driving the science, what's the management and leadership team look like? And are they good people? You know, what kind of values do they have? Just because at this point in my career, I really want to work with people who have aligned values as much as possible, who share those values. And so, you know, I look for the technical expertise, experiences, and then the type of people they are, because biotech is is a little bit of a roller coaster, right? Um, right. There's ups and downs, and you have to you have to plan for that. You have to uh, expect that if you, everything goes swimmingly well out of the gate, that's amazing. But you know, oftentimes you're going to hit challenges. That, actually, most of the times you're going to hit some challenges. I always say there's never a dull moment. You know, there's, you know, there's always something, there's always some fire that needs to be put out. And so how, you know, who are these people? Are they resilient? Are they going to be respectful as we work through those challenges together? Are they going to be more blaming? You know, are they going to be in it for the long run? And, and then, you know, are they just, are they just truthful and honest individuals? And, and then the third leg of the stool is really the overall plan. You know, as I mentioned, I have a real translational mindset. You know, at the forefront of my mind always is that, is this going to be a meaningful therapy for patients? Mm-hmm. Can I see that path? Can I see that we can develop this therapy, that we, you know, understand what it's going to take and that it's really going to be differentiated. It's really going to be meaningful. And, and sometimes that doesn't have to be like, you know, something that it's going to be a completely new mechanism. It can be an incremental improvement over something that's out there existing for patients, but that it would, should be a meaningful improvement. Cause I believe that we need to continue to improve therapies for patients and their families, whether that's around dosing convenience, safety issues, and of course, efficacy, we can improve efficacy rates and get patients into really higher degrees of remission and cures. Of course, that is top of mind. So, but I have to be able to see that plan, you know, and I have to believe in it. And think that it's feasible and that, you know, it's achievable. And I think, you know, if I can't, then there are sometimes great people and great science and platforms that I'm really excited about it, but I don't really see that it's going to make it to the finish line. It's not going to really reach the target profile that I think is warranted to be, again, a meaningful therapy for patients. And so may respectfully decline. So mm-hmm. those are those are some of the things that I look for, but it really all three of those really have to be there and I have to really have conviction that, you know, all three of those criteria being met. 
And I imagine that developing that sense of conviction, you know, as someone who's early in their career, I I find it hard at this point to really have that strong sense of conviction, know that I think this is going to work and therefore I want to be engaged with it. How did you develop that sense of conviction over time throughout your career? And what advice would you have to those earlier in their career, like myself, who want to get to, 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 to that position? You know, you do learn a lot. I've made a lot of mistakes also, of course, <laughs> in my career. So, you know, you have a lot of lessons learned. And when I say strong sense of conviction, it doesn't necessarily mean that I know it's going to work. Mm-hmm. It's just that I believe in it enough that I, you know, I, I'm excited about it because everything, again, as I mentioned, of what we do is risky. That is the nature of biotech. It's just, we don't know if something's going to really work or if it's going to get to the finish line of getting, you know, a drug approved in the U.S. and globally until we get all the data and we understand, you know, and and see how the competitive landscape has evolved and what the unmet need is that we're trying to achieve. I have some rapid fire questions that wanted to go through with you. So the first question is looking, looking ahead the rest of the year, 2023, which therapeutic modality and or target are you most excited about? Yes, that's always a a good one because there's so much great innovation going on in our industry right now. So I love immunology. You know, it's near and dear to my heart. I've done work in oncology, uh, neurology, lots of different therapeutic areas because the application of immune therapies is broad now. It can actually work in many different diseases and disorders, which is very exciting. But I do love immune mechanisms quite a bit. And so my answer is broad. You know, it's really different therapeutic modalities that can further, you know, continue to address disorders of the immune system. So there are a lot of oral therapies that are coming up that I'm very excited about because it does really improve access, I think, for patients. I've worked on biologics for more than half of my career, large proteins, monoclonal antibodies, fusion proteins, bispecifics. And they're great, great drugs. I just want more patients to be on them and clinicians to be prescribing them. I think that is changing now. I think that's definitely um, a shift where mm-hmm. there's been a lot more embracing of those therapies. Um, and that's terrific because they typically can be very, very efficacious and, and, and safe, which is terrific. But I do really like the idea of oral therapies coming up because I do think more patients will get access to them and hopefully stay on them and for many patients who have chronic autoimmune diseases, you know, they really do need to be on lifelong therapy. So anything that's going to facilitate that, I, I'm very, very excited about. But beyond oral therapies, but I do also like bispecifics, uh, especially for, you know, antibodies and or infusion protein constructs, because if you can combine different mechanisms, they, there's an opportunity to really increase response rates and remission rates. And I think that's important for us to get better disease control. You know, when I look back the last two decades, I'm amazed at what we've been able to accomplish. And it's terrific that we have a number of different therapies for all these different disease areas, whether it's in oncology and specific tumor types, or in, again, different autoimmune disease areas, or even for fibrosis. Patients do tend to relapse and they have to go into different therapies and different mechanisms. But if we can treat them up front with different mechanisms, can we actually improve the patients who go into remission and they get their disease under better control? So I think that's exciting to me. And then I'm also very interested in therapies that basically affect the the Treg cells and our ability to help our bodies really get the immune system into better balance. 
And if we were able to do that very well, there's this whole idea of can we reset tolerance and induce tolerance and actually obviate the need for chronic lifelong immunosuppression. And that would be a major breakthrough, you know, in, in our, in the areas of immunology. So I am quite interested in that and uh, whether that's done with, you know, exogenous CAR T type therapies or, you know, other modalities, I think is yet to be seen. I definitely share your enthusiasm for, for bi-specifics, especially in comparison to cell therapy, because I, I think when, from a manufacturing and ability to scale perspective, I think it's a little easier with, uh, with the bi-specifics rather than the cell therapies. What are, who are some female founders you look up to? There are more female founders nowadays than that I I ever remember, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the women CEOs actually in our our group, which we call you know colloquially the biotech sisterhood, are actually founders of their own companies, and I'm just in awe of them. Just brilliant, brilliant women. There are a few that I I'm just amazed by their scientific expertise and and then their entrepreneurial abilities to bring together companies and just you know, the level of which they're operating in our ecosystem. And so you have the, the Carolyn Bertozzi's and Jennifer Doudna and really amazing, you know, obviously Nobel Prize winners and, you know, right. who are applying their technologies and creating multiple companies and continue to further the science that they're, that they're developing and making sure those improvements are getting incorporated fairly real time, right? As soon as they have an advancement, just kind of continue to push the science in the envelope. I have a lot of respect and admiration for just such top world-class leaders in science and how they, they're also doing that in our biotech industry. Those are a few that come to the top of mind. Are there any books that you recommend for those interested in becoming a biotech entrepreneur? You know, I think my books t- tend to typically be around leadership frankly, just because I feel leadership and being an entrepreneur and building and growing and leading companies is, is really important. So I've read a lot of leadership books, you know, through my career, you know, I've, I've read a lot of Brene Brown in terms of the importance of being authentic and vulnerable. And I think that has really resonated well with me, but that, that's what I navigate to. It's helpful to, at least I find those books helpful in terms of providing not only new perspectives, but also several anecdotes from successful entrepreneurs to to support these these ideas. So I always find the anecdotes fascinating because you learn you learn just as much from seeing how how others have approached certain phases of company building. Uh, what is the best piece of advice you have received? It's really around being yourself because that's where your true power lies. If you can be authentic, know your values and live by those values, align with those values, that's when you really can be access your power and and sustain your power. So being yourself, living an authentic life, not having cognitive dissonance, but a very incongruent con- life, professionally and personally, I think is the most important. And that's advice I have received time and time again. And I think it really holds true. And I am really embracing that and trying to be as mindful as I can be every day about doing that with all the different companies I work with and advise and the people I try to help mentor and sponsor. I think that's really critical. So I would advise anyone listening and all of you out there 
to, to do that, to be yourself, to believe in yourself. And from that place, you know, seek your sponsors, you know, challenge yourself. But, you know, you have to kind of come back to your basics. You know, what is your foundation? And I think that really has to be starting with you and developing a solid understanding of, of yourself, what drives you, what motivates you, uh, what your values are, and then living that uh, in a congruent way. Very true. And I think this holds true at any point in your in your career. Thank you. Thank you so much again for taking the time to to share your story and your perspectives on your career as a leader within biotech. Thank you for having me on the podcast and uh, look forward to more conversations. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing producer, Sarah Wetzler, and audio editors, Asim Jain, Nikita Gupta, and Taylor Liss. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting Thea by visiting our website, ThiaHC.org, to donate.